And now it's with great pleasure that I reintroduce uh, Jim Naughton. Jim is an actor and a director from Middletown, Connecticut, our very own Connecticut. He graduated from Brown University in the Yale School of Drama and began his career appearing in Broadway dramas and musicals, later becoming an accomplished actor in film and television roles. You might know him from receiving his first Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical in 1990's City of Angels, and his second Tony in 1997 as lawyer Billy Flynn in the musical Chicago. His films include The Paper Chase and The Devil Wears Prada, among others. So the guy has acting chops. Though today... We're going to talk about Jim as a philanthropist uh, here in Connecticut. He was close friends with the late Paul Newman, with whom he worked closely in the Hole in the Wall gang. And, you know, a couple of causes close to Jim's heart are pancreatic cancer research. And his wife, Pam, died from pancreatic cancer in 2013 and medical aid in dying. Jim, welcome. Hi, Rob. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. So let's start off. Why did you choose acting? Well, it was the only thing that was left, really, for me, um, having um, basically flunked out of everything else up to that point. No, that's not true. Uh, I didn't. I, I really didn't know where I belonged while I was in college. I used to envy the, the engineers because they had a program and they had to just follow what was on the paper and they'd graduate as, and have a career. Um, I uh, I started out as a history major. I was a political science major. I was a uh, I couldn't stay awake in economics classes, and so that left out uh, international relations. And I wandered into the theater in November of my junior year for the first time because a girl that I knew uh, said, "Hey, you should stop by the theater tonight. We got something going Steve, on." Did you hear that? Because a girl. That's right. Because it's a girl. About, it's always about the girl. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. And I, I found her there. Mm-hmm. They were auditioning for a show, and so uh, the director said, "Okay, who's next?" And she literally did one of these, and she pointed next to her to me, and he said, "Okay, come on, get up here." And I said, "No, no, I'm not here to audition." He said, "Don't be shy. Get up here and um, you know, sing us a song." And uh, so I got up and sang a song, and then he said, oh, okay, you know, here, take a look at this scene. Go on out there and look at it for 10 minutes, then come back in here and read it. So I did, and he said, okay. He said, take five, everybody. He said, come over here. He said, you've obviously been on the stage before. I'd done high school shows, you know, Mm -hmm. musicals and things. He said, "Uh, what, are you a freshman? I said, no, I'm I'm a junior. He says, well, where the hell have you been? And I said, I've been playing soccer and baseball. Um, I had been recruited for that. He said, and he literally said, ah, one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he said, um, a a little while later, a couple, he said, I'd like you to to be in the show. I said, well, we're in the NCAA tournament. It was November. And I said, and we play soccer until we lose. So I couldn't possibly do both of these things at the same time. He said, no, you couldn't. When soccer's over, will you come see me? So I went to see him in January. And he sat me down and he just said to me, Jim, I think if you wanted to do this, you could. And I said, you mean for real? And he said, yes. And I said, but I just sang you one song and read a two-page scene. How can he said, because I've been doing this for a long time. And I'm telling you, if you wanted to do it, I think you could. Which was a mind blower to me. And I said, well, how, how do I get there from here? He said... You take my class, it's a scene study class we like you'd get at the actor's studio in New York or, or neighborhood playhouse. 
And when you graduate in a year and a half, you go to Yale Drama School. And I said, just like that? And he goes, yeah, just like that. Which is exactly what you ended up doing. He didn't tell me you had to audition to get into Yale. But I, a year later, I, I, he helped me put together an audition, and I got in, and now, I went. When you started getting the bug for this, who were your influences? Well, I mean, I, you know, being an actor was sort of like being a cowboy when I was a kid. Or, a, or the popsicle man, or a fireman. It was, it was pie in the sky. It was a dream. It wasn't something real. I didn't know anybody who was an actor. And in those days, because it was a long time ago, you know, we didn't have a whole celebrity culture that we have today. There used to be one page in Time magazine that had, you know, movies and another one that had people and another. Now we've got a whole magazine, a whole industry is d- devoted to that sort of thing. So I really didn't know how, the, how you, you could ever get there. Mm. But I went to the drama school uh, sort of with the idea, well, we'll see how this goes. And uh, three years later, I graduated. And two weeks later, I started working. And I've been very, very lucky to have been able to make a living being an actor for 50 years. And and a singer, I might add. Jim just handed me one of his CDs of standards and, and songs that were important in his life. I, I'm not prepared to play it on the radio today, but I think um, on our next radio program, we'll kind of revisit some of that. So let's move to the present moment, Jim, because what I really want to talk to you about is what gets you most inspired as a community activist and a philanthropist here in Connecticut? It's funny. uh a couple of years ago, you remember when kids in cages down in Texas were getting all the ink? Children were being incarcerated, basically. And uh, that day, I heard on the radio a reporter who had just come back from one of these places in Texas, and he had asked an eight-year-old boy, what's uh, the best part of your day? And the child looked at him and thought for a second and said, well, I guess the best part is when they let us stand out in the hall once a day. And I couldn't go to sleep that night. I, I just, uh, and I got up and I wrote an email to several people, guys that I knew. And I said, um, we, this is not, we, we got to do something about this. I'm losing sleep over this. One of the people that I sent my email off to was our Senator uh, Richard Blumenthal. And at 630 the next morning, he responded to me. He said, Jim, this is even worse. He said, I've been down there. It's worse than you can imagine. And I said, uh, well, my friend uh, Ken Bernard, uh, who was who is now actually running uh, for a state senator from Westport. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had emailed him and he said, maybe we should go down on the bridge in March because, you know, the bridge down in Westport is mm-hmm. where all the political stuff happens. So I said to Ken, uh, you want to do it? And he said, yeah. I said, OK. It was Wednesday. I said, this Saturday, we're going to put together a, a march. And he said, well, it's kind of soon. I said, well, I, I got to go someplace next week. It's got to be this Saturday. Or I can't. So that Saturday morning, we were down and we had several hundred people. I emailed Senator Blumenthal. He said, what time? I said, 10 o'clock. He said, I'll be there. He showed up. Um, my son, Greg, and I uh, got a li- We borrowed a, a, a PA system from our friend Chris Coogan, the, the yeah, pianist. Sure. And we were out there in Jessup Green. We were on the bridge. Senator Blumenthal showed up at 10 o'clock and didn't leave. He was there for the whole hour. Uh, I spoke. My friend Ken Bernard spoke. Senator Blumenthal spoke. And and I said to him afterwards, I said, look at this. I'm in my 70s. All of a sudden, I've, I've become an activist. <laughs> and you got the bug. Well, yeah. yeah. and then what happened was um, 
My wife, Pam, you mentioned, died of pancreatic, after fighting pancreatic cancer for four years. And uh, it got to the point where one day she said to me, Jimmy, I don't want to wake up anymore. And when she saw my reaction, she said, well, we've always known this is a fatal disease. And that night when I crawled into bed with her about 11 o'clock, she woke up and she peered at me in the darkness and she said, oh, I thought I wasn't going to have to wake up anymore. Hmm. And the feeling that I had then of not being able to help her, because I was taking care of her. We were, we'd been married for 46 years and we'd been together for 50 and I took care of her for four years. But I couldn't help her out. I couldn't give her what she wanted, what she really was begging for. So that's why this medical aid in dying issue has become something that I've been very involved with for the past four or five years. I've been up to Hartford. I've testified two or three times, three, three or four times. I'm, I'm on the radio talking about it uh, again. I'm meeting with uh, Connecticut state senators and representatives to try to get them to pass it. This year... We got it passed through the Public Health uh, Committee, which was a big deal. Uh, a bipartisan group, 22 to 9, voted it out. Two years ago, we, we failed by one vote to get it out. We know that 75% of Connecticut residents want it. And it's, it's not for everybody, but it's for those few people who are, for whom hospice and palliative care that they offer isn't enough. And I have no knock, there's no knock on hospice. They're wonderful. My, my parents both benefited from their care. But for some people, it just doesn't work. And um, it's So the, what would medical aid in dying look like? I'm thinking of our listeners who might just say, well, what is that, what is Jim? It? What yeah. is it, Jim? Well, uh, it's, it's been legalized in 10 states and the District of Columbia so far. The first was in Oregon in 1997. So for 25 years, the people in, in Oregon have had the ability, if they are suffering and they can't get relief, if they are, you know, that term lingering, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, what Connecticut's bill would do is w- it, w- it would allow patients in that situation to find two doctors who determine that they have six months or less to live, and then they have a waiting period of two weeks, and they have to do it again to make sure that they're not just depressed, but that they literally really need it. Uh, and when they get to the end, uh, they can, and a friend of mine, Rene Aubergenois, a wonderful actor, hmm. uh, he lived in California. He, he had stage four metastatic lung cancer. And after four years of that, he said to his wife, he said, tell tell our friends that I'm proud to say that I live in a state that uh, recognizes a person's right to die with dignity. And one Saturday morning um, with his children and his wife by his side, they listened to their favorite music and they looked at their family photographs. And then he took the cocktail and he was able to pass uh, without any So this this is a step. I'm a little, I'm naive about this. This is a step beyond hospice where the doctor, the medical community is actually helping you implement. Yes. And this is also something that's available in Europe too, isn't it? They, they, I've heard of that. Well, uh, there's, there's a book written by Amy Bloom that's getting a lot of print these days. She took her husband who was dying of uh, Alzheimer's yes. to, to Zurich because they allow that sort of thing to happen. They don't have a six-month uh limit on it uh, or or, a requisite so you can go you have to be of sound mind and body they can't they're not just letting people who are depressed kill themselves anyway that's what we're doing so we are uh you're listening to wpkn this is band central radio i am rob freed the host and we're talking with uh actor and activist jim naughton 
and we're discussing medical aid in dying. Now, I also want to move on to another cause that's dear to your heart. But before we get there, can you just, if people want to follow up on what you're saying and learn more about this topic, can you direct us to a website or a a, a landing spot? Thank you. Yes, Rob. Thanks for asking. Um, In fact, now is the right time because this bill is pending and the Connecticut legislature is in session March and April. It's going to happen within the next couple of weeks. So if this is something that your listeners would like to see happen, they can go to compassionandchoices.org slash Connecticut, and you can find out who your representative or your state senator is, and you can email them, and you can write, you can call them. And a friend of mine who is a Connecticut state senator said if he gets four or five calls on any one subject in his office, that really rings a bell in his office. So it, it's a, this is, we're, we're a democracy, right? If you're interested in this, three out of four of us do want it. That's what the polls say. Let's make some noise. Make some right. noise and All make right. it now. I want to I dovetail to, I know you also have taken pancreatic cancer research close to your heart. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what's going on there? Yes. And, and also, how can listeners you know, learn more about that and get involved in that cause? Uh, there's a doctor in Norwalk Hospital named Dr. Richard Frank. Frank Dr. Frank. Um, he is an oncologist slash researcher, scientist, and he's running, he's the, he's the head of cancer research for all the different cancer researches that, that's, that are going on in New Vance, which is the Norwalk-Danbury connection of hospitals. And he, he personally is running a, uh, a new study to try to find an, an early blood marker for pancreatic cancer. As most of your listeners, as most of us probably know by now, the problem with pancreatic cancer is it doesn't present until it's already stage four. So you don't know you've got it, and then there's no chance that you're going to be able to survive it. It's going to become the number two cancer killer after lung cancer within the next couple of years. That's what they believe. What Dr. Frank is doing is because they know that there is some correlation between people who are over 50 with new onset diabetes and pancreatic cancer. It's a very low correlation, maybe 1.5%. But what he's doing is trying to find people who do have new onset diabetes and do an MRI screening and a blood uh, test. And over a period of years, he's building a biobank so that we can go back and look and say, ah, this, this per- these people developed pancreatic cancer. And here are, are the symptoms. Here are the blood markers for them for the past several years. Here are their MRIs. Because if we could find an early, an early blood marker for this disease, we could pr- save an awful lot of people uh, from dying and an awful lot of their loved ones from suffering. So that's so that's really fascinating because we're going to use the blood markers from diabetes as an early warning signing for uh, a, a different disease. He's running one of the only two uh, pancreatic screening studies in the country for for an early detection for for new onset for dealing with new onset diabetes. So if any of your listeners ha- have that situation, or if they have m- people in their family who have died from pancreatic cancer. Call Dr. Richard Frank at Norwalk Hospital. That's so, all you have to do. So, and, and is that, and Norwalk Hospital is owned by New Vance, correct? Well, it used to be the uh, Western Connecticut Health Network, and it used to be three or four hospitals. It was New Milford, Danbury, uh, Sharon, maybe, and, uh, and Norwalk. 
And now it's uh, merged and it's become bigger. And there are now four hospitals just over the state line in New York, up near Vassar. Vassar Hospital is one of them. So let's just repeat that one more time. For people who want to learn more about the work that's going on in pancreatic cancer research, which is happening right out of Norwalk, Connecticut, yes. right here in our our belly. That's right. Where, where would they go? Call Dr. Richard Frank, Norwalk Hospital. All right. You'll get you'll get to him. You'll get to his assistant. You can give give him your name and number. Say, I have new onset diabetes and I'm 54 or 55 years old. I'd like to get screened. I'd like to become a part of your study. Jim, thank you for that really fascinating and uh, an enjoyable conversation.